right, good morning. How are we this morning? Good? I love it. If you have your Bibles, we'll be back in Ecclesiastes this morning as we're going to be walking through uh, a bit of a wrestle this morning. And I hope that you guys are along with the wrestle with me. First off, how was, uh, how did everyone sleep last night? Good. How many of you got like less than eight hours? Less than seven? Less than six? Oh gosh. Five? Four? Three? Okay. Take a nap during free time. Y'all are crazy. I love it. I love it. That's why I love camp. You just come eat all the sweets and don't sleep. It's crazy. Uh, and then you forget everything. But anyways, so stoked to be with you guys this morning as we have an opportunity, again, to wrestle a little bit. Last night, we unpacked who God is, that he alone is creator, intentional and all-powerful and all-holy, that he holds the expanse of the world in his hand, the expanse of the waters, that he breathes stars, and because of that, because he is all-powerful, all-holy, all-intentional, all-loving creator, only he can give purpose and meaning, that it only comes from him. And we unpack that we can't even find our own purpose or meaning with our knowledge or our wisdom or anything under the sun. For God is the source of all wisdom and knowledge. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Not like the knowledge or wisdom you and I can suffice or understand under the sun here on earth because it's always changing. Relevancy is an ever-moving target, and it's exhausting to chase after. So we ended with the fact of what is our response then to a God that's so big, so grand, so holy, perfect in knowledge, perfect in wisdom, pure personification of love. What is our response? Our response is to fear him, to put him in utter awe and reverence in our life, that he is God and we are not, that nothing can give purpose outside of the Lord. But this morning, we're going to wrestle a little bit. How many of you in uh, the dining hall looked up and saw all the animals that are on the wall in there? It's kind of crazy and low-key sad. Uh, But, like, even my daughter was like, Dad, they look so real. I'm like, yeah, they did such a great job. Um, But uh, there's one, and there's, uh, if you walk in, it'll be right on the right. There's an ape hanging on the wall. Have you ever wondered, like, looking at monkeys and how, like, incredibly quick and crafty they are? How the heck does one actually catch and poach a monkey, a primate? I know it's pretty gross to talk about this morning, but there's a point to it, I promise. So what they do is they'll take a basket, and they'll just put a small hole in the basket like this. And inside the basket, they'll put sweet fruit bananas, whatever, guava inside of this basket, and they put the baskets on the bottom of the trees. And what ends up happening is these monkeys begin to smell the fruit, smell what they think is good. So what happens is one by one, they'll come crawling down the tree, and they'll walk over to the tree, and they kind of look around, see the basket, and they bend down, and they take their hand, and they squeeze it as tight as they can. And they put their hand through that little hole and they grab the fruit. The problem is, when they try to pull their hand out of the hole, they can't do it. Because they refuse to let go of the fruit that's in their hand. If they simply let go, 
They could slide their hand out and be free from danger and certain death. But they continue to hold on to it. So what happens is the poacher comes and they capture them. And friends, this is an analogy and an illustration to help us understand that for us, we we were all born grasping at something. That something being sin. And so often we cherish it, we fight for it, we hold on to it, even if we know certain death and certain destruction is on the other side, but we simply want our sin so badly. And friends, this morning, we're going to have to wrestle with three truths in regards to sin. One is that humanity is eternally stained and marked by sin. And friends, it's not just what you do. It's woven and twisted into the fabric and DNA of who you and I are in our hearts. Second, sin always overpromises and underdelivers. It always overpromises and underdelivers. And second, we are powerless over sin. So this morning we're going to have to wrestle. But like a good friend who before you go out on a date points out the broccoli that's in the middle of your teeth, in a sense that we're, that's what we're going to be doing this morning, in love, pointing out the key area of our life that is in desperate, desperate need. So look at Ecclesiastes chapter 2 with me. I'm going to read verses 1 through 11, and then I'm going to pray. It says this. I said in my heart, come now, and I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself, but behold... This also is vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold of folly till I might see what was good for the children of man under the heaven during the few days of my life, of their life. I made great works. I built houses, planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools which to water the forest and the growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions and herds and flocks more than any who were in Jerusalem before me. I also gathered myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines and delights of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all the toil, and this was my reward for my toil. Then I considered all my hands have done, and the toil that I had expended doing it, and behold, all was vanity and striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. This is God's word. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, God, I pray this morning, God, would you just illuminate our hearts to the truth that we are in desperate need of you. God, I pray for our friends here, for me. God, that we would, as the video said, lay down our pride. 
and admit that we can't do it and we need you. Holy Spirit, would you crack open our hearts that we would realize we are desperate for you. That singing we need you is not just lyrics we sing in a song. May it be an outcry of our heart. God, I pray as I teach your word, would I teach it in the reverence and diligence it so deserves. And all God's people said, amen. So how many of you are familiar with the actor Jim Carrey? Yeah, come on. Uh, best movie, The Mask. Don't argue. Um, but Jim Carrey in an interview, incredibly successful actor, millionaire, said this in an interview. I find it fascinating. He said, I think everyone should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of. Why? So that they can see it's not the answer. This is a man who's reached the pinnacle of his craft. He says, I hope everyone could experience this so we could realize that it is indeed empty. Another man John D. Rockefeller, a guy who lived in the 1890s, was the world's first billionaire. He was on the cutting edge of the oil industry. His worth was $410 billion. That's more than Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk combined. In an interview, John D. Rockefeller was asked, how much money is enough to make you happy and bring fulfillment? And his answer, just a little bit more. It was never going to be enough. And these voices point to a truth that one way before their time did this experiment himself in Solomon. That Adam talks about in the video. That he chased after everything the world had to offer. And we're going to unpack what he found. It says this in verse 1 of chapter 2. I said in my heart, come now and I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this was vanity. So Solomon kind of sets the stage. He's like, I'm going to go on this epic experiment of human existence. I'm going to chase after and pursue anything I've ever desired, thought about, or wanted, and I'm not going to hinder myself. I'm going to go for it. If it's money, I'm going to chase after it. If it's fame, I'm going to go for it. If it's women, I'm going to chase after it. If it's popularity, I'm not going to stop myself. I'm going to go for it. And in verses 2 through 10, he gives this laundry list of everything he accumulated. Verse 2, it's laughter and pleasure. Verse 3, wine and the party scene. Verse 4 through 5, he built himself the finest house. His house was about 11,000 square feet and five to seven stories tall. It's about a $50 million house if you were to buy it in California. Crazy. Verse 7, power and companionship. His sexual desires lorded over 30,000 slaves he was in charge of. He had 700 wives. That's nuts. Did not hold back from human relationship or sexual desire. Verse 8, gold and riches. We see in the text that he had over 600 plus talents of gold a year. Okay, what the heck does that mean? That's equivalent to a billion dollars a year is this guy's income. Verse 9 and 10, he was the wisest and smartest person of all time. We see in 1 Kings that the queen of Egypt comes to visit Solomon, and she sees all that Solomon has. 
and she sees all his wisdom. And the text says she was left without breath. She was in awe of this man's wisdom, of this man's prestige, of this man's authority, even trumping her own, being Egypt, one of the biggest superpowers of the time. And yet, out of all of these accomplishments, out of all of this laundry list of things that Solomon pursued, what was the conclusion? Verse 11, then I considered all my hands had done and the toil that I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity, or it was meaningless, or it was vapor. It was there one minute, and it was gone the next. It never fulfilled in striving after the wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Remember, this word vanity, vapor, said over 35 times in this book. Only lasts mere seconds. Now again, is having money a bad thing? No. Is having a good house a bad thing in and of itself? No. But when we chase after it as if it is the ultimate, when we make that car, that money, those likes, that prestige, that influence, that job, when we make that the ultimate pursuit in our life, what happens is it becomes an idol. And we begin to worship it with our talents. We pursue it with everything we have. We begin to worship it with our treasures. We give money to it. Like I just started playing Pokemon Go again. You're welcome. And one of my key questions I ask people is, hey, are you like spending money on this? And they're like, yeah, I'm like idle, you know? Just kidding. But anyways, what are you spending money on? It's a good chance to look at where am I worshiping and your time. You don't worship your, if you, if you might think, oh, I, I don't worship anything, go on your phone, look up your screen time, and see how much time you spend on social media. Terrifying. Two years ago, I did a social media fast for a year because I was unhealthy with my relationship with social media. And I deleted it off my phone. I went a whole year. You know how much my screen time went down? 80%. Friends, I say that as a discipline of confession. What are we giving our time to? Because anything that we give our time, talents, and treasures to that isn't the Lord, it is an idol in our life, and it's, it's vanity, it's meaningless. But when we put the weight of our life, the weight of our worship, the weight of our identity, the weight of our meaning, the weight of our hope on God and God alone, we begin to fear him, and we begin to realize our full meaning and purpose and identity. But without that, we're left with nothing. And each time we chase after something else, it leaves us more broken than we were when we started. We trade, how often do we trade the truth of God for lesser things? We trade our word for our phone. We trade prayer for mindless zoning out on Netflix. We trade fill in the blank. Community with those who are a part of the family of God in church with going to do something else. And I'm not saying going to have fun is a bad thing. By all means, God created fun. He created celebration and joy. But friends, it was never meant to be the God of your life. And how often we make it and it fails us. And the unfortunate thing is when we make something that wasn't God, God in our life, and it fails us, we turn around and we blame God as if it's his fault. When in fact, he says, no, 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 I've been here pursuing you and pleading with you in love that I'm the only one who satisfies. 
So why do we do this? Why do you and I instinctively, without thinking about it, chase after other things? Why do we have these desires in our heart in the first place? Why are we chasing after things without even thinking about it that have nothing to do with God? I hope I'm not the only one in this room who struggles with that. Why does that desire to have something else sit on the throne of our life other than God, why is that desire even there? And that desire, the reason why it's there is because of sin. What is sin? Sin is anything and everything that we think, say, and do and worship that is apart from God. But it's much deeper And I would argue maybe even a little more sinister than that. Sin is not just what we do. Sin is twisted and intertwined with the very fabric of our heart. How did this happen? See, in Genesis 1 and 2, God creates a perfect utopic environment for humanity to live. And Adam and Eve live in perfect, unhindered relationship with a loving God. And then we get to page 3 of your Bible. And God, in the midst of this, has asked one thing of Adam and Eve. Do not eat the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And though for some of us, like, wow, God's holding out on them, I would contend that is far from the truth. He gave everything to them at their fingertips. They could enjoy everything but this one fruit. Why? Because in choosing to obey it, they were proclaiming, God, you're more important than anything and everything in all of creation. So I'm going to wake up today and I'm going to choose you, which I would contend how many of you like the feeling when someone chooses you? (laughs) That's a relationship. God created humanity for relationship. The tree was there as a catalyst for them to choose God each and every day. However, that's not what happened. Adam and Eve look at the tree And they begin to believe that in that they can find full fulfillment outside of God. And they take it and they eat. And sin enters the world. They proclaimed by the eating of that fruit, God, we believe that creation is better than you. And we want to be God and not you. In military terms, that's called treason. They commit cosmic treason against God. We want to be God, not you. And then sin Darkness and evil enters creation. And sin is now adopted from then to every human being now. That includes you and me. And that isn't my words. That isn't my opinion. We see in the scriptures, God's word himself, David in Psalm 51, in sin my mother conceived me. Romans 5, 12, therefore, just as sin came in the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because of sin. 1 John 1, 8 through 10 says this, if we say we have no sin. So if you're looking at me going, Matt, that doesn't apply to me. I don't struggle with sin. Says this, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. We're actually lying to ourselves and the truth is not in us. Romans 10.10 says this, none is righteous, or in other words, righteous meaning they do what is right in all their deeds, words, relationships, and attitude. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside together and have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And if you don't believe me, 
Just turn on the news for five minutes. If you don't believe me, look at the rising suicide rates. If you don't believe me, look at the war going on in Israel. If you don't believe me, I mean, even as something is awesome, and I don't know if any Kansas City fans are here, but <laughs> Kansas City wins the Super Bowl, and at their celebration, there's a shooting. Even at the height of a celebration, sin enters. There's a problem, a universal, eternal problem of sin that you and I are intertwined with. And trust me, I love my kids more than anything else in the world. But man, I did not teach them to hit each other, and they do it all the time. I, did, I remember a couple months ago, my daughter Sunday loves chewing gum. It's the weirdest thing. She's three. I'm like, this is weird. But she loves when mom and dad bring home gum. And I remember... I see her, I'm like helping clean her room, and then she picks up a little kid's stool, and she begins to walk out of the room with a stool. I'm like, hey, sweetie, what you doing with the, with the stool? She's like, oh, I'm just going to go play in the living room. I'm like, all right, I'm going to watch this. We don't play in the living room with stools. We'll see what happens. So she goes, and she takes it. I'm following her, and she takes it into the kitchen, sets it up, climbs on top of the counter, then on top of the fridge where I had a pack of gum, and she takes it, opens it, and takes the piece of gum out, and she turns, and she looks at me standing there, and she puts it behind her back. And I was like, oh, what do you have behind your back? She's three. Nothing. I did not teach my daughter to steal. I did not teach my daughter to lie. The fabric of sin that is in her has taken root because sin affects all human beings. And the thing about sin, friends, is it always overpromises and underdelivers. It promises you the world. It promises you, man, the relationship you've always been looking for. It's promised you the acceptance you've always longed for. It's promised you the success you've always chased after. And then you taste it, and it leaves you more broken than you started. Sin always overpromises and underdelivers. It's like when you go fishing. You stick the hook in the water, but you don't just stick the hook in the water, do you? You put a bait on the end of it, and it looks really good to the fish. And it shines, and it glistens in the sunlight under the water. And to the fish, it's everything it's ever desired until it takes hold of it, and now it's caught. And that hook is not letting go, leading to certain death. And friends, for some of us, up until this weekend, we've been pursuing the hook with everything we are. And it's left us hooked and destined for destruction. Sin always overpromises and underdelivers. So what does it do? Sin separates us from a holy God, but it also condemns us to die. Romans 6:23 says, "For the wages of sin is death." In the Greek language, in the original language of which that was penned, that word "death" has a double meaning. It basically repeats itself, for the wages of sin is die, die. A physical death, but also an eternal death. To be separated from the source of perfect love being God himself. That we are eternally separated from God, from eternal joy, from eternal peace, from eternal love, from eternal forgiveness and acceptance. Because of sin, we are separated from us, separated from it. 
So what can you and I do about sin? Can we earn our way out of it? No. Because you see, even my very desires are twisted. Put it this way. Imagine I have black paint stained on my hands. I can't get it off. And I have something on my shirt. And you go, hey, Matt, you have like a, a syrup stain from breakfast. Can you like wipe that off? What would happen if I wiped it off? The stain would get on my shirt. If I try to clean up myself, it's always going to end in just more junk getting on my shirt. We can't clean ourselves off. We can't save ourselves. We can't will our way, work our way out of it. Nor can you and nor can I. And the cost of sin is the cost of my life, both physically here on earth and eternally apart from God. Are you getting the picture? Sin is a big deal. It's a deal that costs your life, physically and eternally, that there's no way you can break free from it yourself. If you are stained by it, it's in the very fabric of who you are. The point is, friends, you and I need someone unstained by sin, unbound by sin, unchained by sin to come and take our sin and pay for that payment of death for us. We need someone to stand in the gap, to be a substitute for you and for me. Someone who does not know how to sin, someone who's never sinned to bear the weight of sin. Someone who's owed life. As sinners, we are owed death. We get what we deserve. We need someone who's owed life, who doesn't deserve death, to take death on our behalf. Does that make sense? You need someone to pay the bill you and I could never pay. Our bank accounts aren't big enough. You and I are in desperate, desperate, desperate need of a Savior. And friends, like the video said, one of the biggest roadblocks to getting to that point of realizing you are in desperate need of a Savior is pride. Oh, I don't, I'm good. I can figure it out on my own. Oh, well, at least I'm not as bad as that person. Well, I haven't done this thing. Friends, we're all in the same boat with sin. It's not just what we do, it's much more sinister than that. And it's coming after your soul. Friends, we need a savior. I would hope as we close this morning that you would spend some time in your cabins being honest. Because here's the thing. What did scripture just say? We've all sinned. We all struggle with sin. We're all in the midst of sin. So if you confess something in your cabin, I guarantee you people are going to go, yeah, me too. What would it look like for you today to just begin to be honest? To be radically honest about what's going on in your life. A year and a half ago, I sat in a room with three other guys. And I confessed a laundry list of stuff I said I would never confess to my grave. And I remember at the end of it, I was expecting to be rejected. But it was the biggest point of acceptance and love I had ever experienced. My best friend stands up in the corner of the room, walks over, puts his hand on my shoulder and goes, Matt, me too. Let's do this together. What would it look like for you and your cabins to be honest about your desperate need for a savior? Because friends, time is short. What would it look like for you 
Saturday, what is it, February 17th, 16th, to be honest about your need for a Savior, to walk in humility, to lay pride aside that that pride is going to only lead to death, but in humility begin to admit, I need Jesus. Amen? Heavenly Father, God, you're good. Lord, and as we wrestle with sin in our lives, God, I, I just pray, Holy Spirit, would you empower us with courage to be honest with where we're at. God, I pray for my friends. As I know, the, the, the fears will creep in of, man, I, what if they found out or what if they knew? God, you know. And Jesus, you love them through it. God, I pray, Holy Spirit, would you break open our hearts and would we see our need for you, our desperate need for you. God, we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.